0: A new year brings a new beginning. For all my listeners that own a business, I want to tell you about FedEx Office. If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx, creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. We are teaming up with FedEx and PodGo to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx. For 30% off your next order, FedEx, the world on time. Health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Brodersheimer, your host. Today, we have a returning guest, Larry Jorgensen, and he was a guest back on episode 20, telling us about his book, The Coca-Cola Trail. And he's back with a new book, which is The Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. So I'm really excited to hear about the new towns, the new artifacts, dare I say, (laughs) the different landmarks that are highlighted in the book. And interestingly enough, our last touch base was almost exactly a year ago before 2020 really got underway (laughs) with all of the fun things that have happened. So heck, any conversations I can have that highlight travel and especially domestic travel, (laughs) which is probably where we're all going to be for a little while. I'm all about. So, Larry, thanks for taking the time to join me again today.
1: Well, we we appreciate the opportunity to come back. And you talk about travel. You know, I had a a gentleman contact me just this week who is already planning his travel for this summer. He said, we're getting back on the road. And he said, there's two places that you've got the book I have to go see. So, Hopefully, we're all going to be traveling again.
0: My wife is a physician, so she was one of the first to be able to get the vaccine. Gosh, I guess at this point, it was a couple of weeks ago. So I'm seeing a little bit of it moving along. So hopefully, everybody's getting to that point And yeah, we get back to some amount of normalcy with travel, of course, and just day to day. Now, I know when you and I connected before, this book was already in the works. Did COVID and lockdowns mess with your timeline or anything like that?
1: Not too bad because um, by that point, I had done a lot of the travel and I uh, had that kind of research done and where I needed uh, additional Fortunately, I was able to find people in the area that would, uh, you know, bird dog for me and get me uh, what was missing and get me some photos. Uh, I've, I've throughout both books, I've gotten a lot of help from historical associations, uh, museums, and, and and just people that are fans of Coca-Cola. Maybe families of generations of Coca-Cola. Been a big help in putting both the books
0: together. As far as all of the towns in general, I want to say you've made it to most, maybe not all of them. Was that similar this time around? I made it
1: to the ones that I felt were um, important to the book. And they're all important, but a lot of them, there's a lot more detail. And a good example is Dothan, Alabama, um, where not only did I spend several days there, But the daughters, uh, one who lives in Alabama and one who lives in Florida, who are the uh, granddaughters of the original uh, person who built and operated the plant, actually came to Dothan to meet with me and to share their family history. So that was a, a wonderful experience. And we do talk about it in the book and have photos of them and, and what's happened to that Coca-Cola plant. So it's, uh, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the ones that I felt needed the attention, uh, we made every effort we could to get there and, and give them that attention.
0: And of course, that was presumably before (laughs) uh, we all sort of were locked into our houses. Well, let's jump into some of the highlights that I noted. One of the first stories – reminded me of the first book, which is the green Coca-Cola bottle and how that all came to be. So maybe that's a good place to kick us off. Again, if folks have listened to the first episode that you were on, uh, they will have heard about how the green bottles came together in that competition and has become now iconic. But do you want to remind folks about that story and how that came to be?
1: Well, and I think the interesting thing that we didn't talk about in the book is how the why the bottle was green, and that's another one of those places that I went to visit the town of Greencastle, Indiana. Now the name of the town has nothing to do with the color of the bottle, except that's why that's where it happened. Um, Greencastle is about fifty miles from Terre Haute. And Terre Haute is where, as we said in the first book, uh, where the Root Glass Company was and where the bottle was developed, who actually uh, won the competition and the first bottling was done. Green Castle is the site, and this is where we get into the Green Castle chapter in book number two, where the Root Bottling Company owned a sand quarry, and they were bringing the material the sand, they were processing it, they grinding it, hauling it to Terre Haute to make the bottles. Well, as it turned out, the sand from Greencastle had certain minerals in it, which when the glass was made, actually created that green tint. Uh, Coca-Cola, when they approved the bottle, uh liked that color so much, they actually gave it a name. They called it German Green. And then they thought, no, we, we'll, we'll give it a better name. They called it Georgia Green because of Georgia, you know, being their home. But it was ironic. It was created because of that particular sand in Greencastle. And we do have photos in the book of the the, um, the the milling of the of the sand and so forth but the neat thing is that when other bottle manufacturers were then allowed licensed whatever to produce the coca-cola bottle The company said it must have the green tint to it. And if your sand can't do that, add the minerals to make it do that. So it it sort of happened by happenstance, and it became tradition to
0: have the green bottle. I have to jump back. Again, I'm going to memory lane to your point about the name German, the time frame everybody's mind, I guess, goes right to World War II. So <laughs> the term German wasn't uh, well-received, I feel like, in the time frame, which again, uh, I think is something that's noted in both details of the story. And one other thing I had to note, it was for the section on Atlantic, Iowa. I think You were planning on going to one of the Coca-Cola festivals with the first book and to get in touch with more people that presumably you've talked to to put the books together. I want to say if I'm testing my memory, that one was in Minnesota – not in Iowa. But I did note that they have Coca-Cola days, which again is a big reminder of how universal the Coca-Cola brand is.
1: Yeah, it was in Iowa and we did go. Atlantic, Iowa is uh, west of Des Moines, oh Lord, a couple hours, I guess, best way to describe it. It's a neat little farming town and it just you know they they sort of fell in love with their Coca-Cola bottler and it evolved that Coca-Cola company right now that bottler is one of the few independent bottlers in the country that has grown to the extent where they're bottling, they're canning, they're cover, covering several states with their distribution. And it's, it's unlike so many bottlers, which have merged, and been bought out by the bigger guys, and, and so many of your bottlers right now really are simply distributors. The product is made in one place, and it's trucked all over to the different, what used to be bottling places that are now simply warehouses, you know. So Atlantic... They have this big once-a-year Coca-Cola festival, and it's it's a show. Uh, we did exhibit at the show. It's a trader's show. All the Coca-Cola collectors of the country, it seems like, go there. And so we exhibited in the show, sold a few books, but more importantly, had the opportunity to meet with and to tour the Coca-Cola plant there and to learn the history of that company. It's an amazing company. Um, the family which originally started the company 135 years ago started out in making ice and ice cream. And in uh, 1916, they bought a company that uh, was basically an ice cream company. And in buying that company, at that time, what they were doing is they were making sodas, you know, sarsaparilla, orange, whatever, you know. Uh, they bought this ice cream company, and they found in the safe a contract that, that company had signed with Coca-Cola to be distributors in that area, but had never done anything about it. So they thought, well, let's try it. So they started, they bought some syrup and they started bottling Coca-Cola. And in Iowa at that time, Coca-Cola wasn't well known. You know, that was 1916. And Coca-Cola was pretty much a Southern thing in the early 1900s. So they had to work to convince people to try it. You know, they'd send out a case of um mixed sodas, you know, oranges and lemons and so forth. And they'd slip in a couple of Cokes in there, you know, to get people to try it. Um In the wintertime, of course, it gets cold in Atlantic, Iowa. um, They'd go to the grocery stores and they'd get the cheese boxes that the cheese came in, put them out on the windowsill, pack them full of snow, and put some Coca-Cola bottles in there so that the Coke would be cold. And people could buy cold Coca Cola. Eventually, it took off, and the company grew. They acquired other territories, and they are—they're huge right now. And they're—and they're one. And it's still the Tyler family. Jim Tyler, who is uh, was a little boy when it all started, uh, is still the man in charge there. And of course, his son. Uh, is running it but jim's in his nineties now and gave me a tour of the plant and uh just an amazing man um he has he said you want to see my toy and I said sure and we go to this big garage within the plant and there's a huge RV their motorhome you know and he gets in it and drives to you know to Alabama football games and all kinds of things he's just an amazing person I had a chance to, uh, um, speak at the Coca-Cola Collectors Convention and, and the whole thing was just a wonderful experience. They, they normally hold it in the fall last year, 2020, because of you know what they had to cancel it, but look for it next year. I'm sure next fall, uh, Atlantic, and it's not Atlanta, it's Atlantic, Iowa, uh, Will have their event, and if you're all interested in Coca Cola, by all means, that's one to make. Is it in September? I think is what I read. Yeah, I believe it was September. I I would need to look back at my notes, but I think it was September. It was early fall, and uh, it was just a great time to be in Atlantic. You know, it wasn't snowing yet, and uh, Atlantic is uh, it's out, it's on the interstate highway. What is that, 80, I guess. Um, and uh, it's not too far from Nebraska, you know. So you're a poke out there into the into the hinterlands, you know. Um, one of the things we saw in Atlantic is all well, besides Coca-Cola, it's a big producer of ethanol, and uh, of course they, they they have a lot of a lot of corn out there. So you got to do something with. It.
0: <laughs> yeah, Exactly, <laughs> uh, and also of note, the book. Maybe I'm stating the obvious, but it's very familiar to the first where you've got the certain towns or a specific theme. For example, we'll talk about the signs together. And within each of these stories, especially the fact that these are independent bottlers in most cases, you get to hear, just like you mentioned with Atlantic, the families that again, it's hard to imagine, took a chance on Coca-Cola. But hey, there was a period where people didn't actually know exactly what it was. And then you can see the small business story for each one of these families in the different towns that you have going on. Dare I say, a connection again to lockdowns, as it sounds like more and more people are ready to take a chance and do their own small business thing. I know I've had a lot of different folks on that have talked about being entrepreneurs and things like that. So these are some stories that you can latch on to if that's a world that you're heading into or just are very interested again in the history, obviously, that it will be the specific families that took a chance and made some part of what, Coca-Cola now is. So I just mentioned the signs. And again, I know that's a section highlighted in the first book as well. All of the memorabilia and basically what is Americana, it seems like, with – the various Coca-Cola signage, other types of memorabilia. So specifically, you have a section about Georgia and what all they have done and some of the programs there. And then in the back of the book, there is the SOS or Save Our Signs section. So tell me a little bit about those and what do you think has spawned the interest in those restorations?
1: Well, I think the, the Coca-Cola sign restoration, the signs were so unique, and and they were actually original works of art. They're just outside art, you know. And communities, you know, you have a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about something you've enjoyed. And Coca-Cola, people enjoyed, and the signs on the wall, and every time you'd go buy it, you know, it was like, boy, I enjoyed that. So... It was a combination of wonderful pieces of art, outdoor art, and warm feelings, memories that they brought back. That community said, "Wait a minute, we got to preserve these. We, this is part of our history. It's part of our people." And because of that connection, they, they've had fundraisers. Uh, there's a uh, numerous communities that have really spent a lot of time. Raising the money to restore the signs, I think one of the neat ones in the back of the book we talk about uh, Albion, um, Michigan, where the sign, in fact, is on a huge sign. It's on a building that is over that overhangs the Kalamazoo River, and the effort they had to go to to restore that. But I, one of the cute sayings that, that I enjoyed that came out of that when the sign was painted on the building. The building had previously been uh, the home of a, a piano store. guy sold pianos. And uh, flood came along and flooded out the bottom part of the store and there were actually pianos floating, we've been told, today, out floating down the Kalamazoo River. And the quote that I thought was classic is, one of the fishermen who saw a piano float by said, well... You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. You know, <laughs> that's pretty pretty cute. But, but anyhow, I mean, the communities go to a great effort to restore these. And I think in Georgia, an example, you talk about the chapter in Georgia, an art professor at the University of Georgia got his students together, and they formed a little group called Color the World Bright. And they have gone around the state contracting, making agreements with communities that have these signs that need to be restored. And the, the that chapter tells about the different communities, where they've gone, what the sign looked like before it was restored, what it looks like now, and, and why it was restored. And, the, and it's amazing the effort these communities have gone to Save our signs. You know, it's a and and here's a a university professor that's got his students involved as a learning process, and they pick up a few bucks in the process, you know. It's a great it's a it's a, a wonderful thing that to, to have the Coca-Cola murals out there.
0: I also picked out the very end of the section of with Georgia, and specifically for Columbus, Georgia, there's the picture of birthplace of Coca-Cola. So it sounds like there's, well, let's hope a friendly competition between Columbus and Atlanta claiming the birthplace of Coca-Cola. Can you tell me a little bit about that and who wins? Uh, FYI, I'm an underdog guy, so I'm pulling for uh, Columbus.
1: Well, actually, I guess it depends who you... Who you listen to, but the the, supposedly the truth of the matter is that Pemberton uh, invented the syrup, created the syrup uh, when he was in fact a druggist in Columbia. Okay, and he went, uh, he moved to Atlanta, took the formula with him, and um, that's where it was actually produced. I think to back up the underdog story here, um, one of the ex archivists from Coca Cola, um, Mr. Mooney, goes with the theory that yes, it was not in, uh, developed in Atlanta. It was invented in Columbia and um, Columbus. And um, he's that, he, that, he says, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So I guess it, it was first probably put on sale in Atlanta at that little drug store where it was sold for medicinal purposes, supposedly. And uh, it went from there. So let them both fight over it. They both have monuments and statues to the to the birth of Coca-Cola. As long as we've got it in the right state, I guess that's what's important. <laughs> that's,
0: well, it gives another task for people that are following your book and trying to go on the Coca-Cola trail, maybe they can go to Atlanta, they can go to Columbus and decide for themselves who gets which piece of the pie. And in turn, they'll get to see a good amount of the state of Georgia. So that that's a good point. At least they're not too far from each other that you could do that comparison.
1: And Columbus too, while they're there, um, there's a lot of, uh, Pemberton, memorabilia there the you know the place where supposedly he worked and his home and there's a lot of coca-cola history in columbus so uh, it's worth the trip
0: and i again i know i keep referencing it's a theme that we talked about before that's another one of the things i like about the book is these are towns that people might not have on their bucket list otherwise but there are a lot of historical items To appreciate. And again, especially with what we faced this last year, it's a better time than any other time to realize there's a lot of cool stuff in your backyard. Again, I'm in Virginia, so there are certainly towns that get into the western side of the state that I need to put on my list. And we were just in the Smoky Mountains, for me, the first time actually this past year as kind of a staycation. And Clearly, there are some Tennessee towns that are highlighted, plenty of Tennessee towns uh, that you can find out a lot more and what their history is. One piece I have to ask you about, because I am a Star Wars fan and it's around the Coca Cola museums and the Cobot. So uh, tell me what that is and what exactly occurred that they had to abandon it. I'm imagining some kind of cease and desist.
1: Yeah, I, the Cobot. Uh... And you can see three of them at a um, museum in Decatur, Illinois. Again, uh, that museum is a case of a Coca-Cola collector who let his uh, hobby get out of control. And he actually bought an antique store and a railroad depot to to, to establish his museum. But getting back to the story of the Cobot, if you remember from Star Wars, there was R2-D2 this neat little guy, you know, and Coca-Cola took advantage of that popularity and they created the CoBot, the Coca-Cola robot. And he was in fact a little, it was a Coca-Cola uh, can with Coca-Cola bottles for feet and so forth. And it was, it was a robot. It could be, you could move it around, you know, and control it. And, uh, the, um, it, it looked; it really did look a lot like an R2-D2, and they got all kinds of mileage with it. And the, the, um, the surface of the Coca-Cola can actually had a changeable—you uh, could order a different package, and you could make it a Coca-Cola Cobot, or you could make it a Sprite Cobot, or a Mellow Yellow, or whatever. And there are three of them in this museum in Decatur, Illinois um they were they were developed in the 70s and they were fairly quickly uh the project was abandoned by Coca-Cola and uh, the gentleman who, who runs a museum said he, th- he the story he heard was that uh there was a little pushback from the folks at Star Wars on this uh infringement type thing and so consequently the cobot has become a very uh, rare and expensive collector's item, and here's this museum in Illinois. He's got three of them, you know. So it's a it's a pretty neat thing to see to see And, and again, it's Coca-Cola taking advantage of a, a a popular situation and marketing with it. They did the same thing, and it's again it's in that museum with Levi's. They created six or seven Levi vans, which became prizes, and these were the the, the old uh, custom vans, you know, with all the goodies. And they were carpeted inside, and and they were uh, included Levi material as part of the decorations inside, and then they were painted up outside. Um, I think there were six of those made, and the gentleman and has the museum ultimately found three of them, and has kept one and resold the other two. And it's on display at the museum. So Coca-Cola has always been known, you know, to, to capitalize. I mean, look at Christmas. If there's anybody that has kidnapped Santa Claus, it's Coca-Cola. You know, they created the Santa Claus that everybody is familiar with, the image was created in 1931 by a Coca-Cola artist. And that Santa, in various poses, various forms, has lived on since, to the point where you may recall two Christmases ago, the post office issued four stamps with, with Santa Claus on them. They were, in fact, coca cola Santas, but they didn't put coca cola on the stamps you know um, and so th- that 's an example and it's it 's even further than that with coca cola and Christmas you have the uh, the the coca cola uh, the, the uh, trucks the big truck Christmas time these huge semis roll into town right they 're all decorated and, and i mean and that 's worldwide I saw a message from Uh, a coca-cola collector in england and he was anxious to find out what the roots was going to be for the the trucks that christmas so it's a big deal and how about charlie brown the charlie brown christmas the original one wouldn't have happened if Coca-Cola wouldn't have stepped up and said, we think that's a great idea and came up with the money to make it happen, and Charlie Brown's Christmas lives on because of Coca-Cola. they Again, what's a, what's a softer spot in your heart than Christmas? Why not put Coca-Cola with it? And they have been very successful in that.
0: To continue that same point, I... When I was reading that section, and you highlight Springfield, Tennessee, which I guess they call it Christmas done bright, and it's all in that section that you go over the synonymous name of Coke and Christmas and the way they've done that. One that I didn't see in there that I definitely remember growing up are the polar bears, the Coca Cola bears, uh, because. I don't know when exactly they came out, but I feel like it was when I was of an impressionable age. (laughs) So that was the one I was thinking of. And I'm like, oh, that's actually one I don't think I saw.
1: You know, that's a good point. Maybe book number three. We didn't spend a lot of time on the bearer, but the fact is they're almost as famous as Santa Claus. And. They're back every year, and they're lovable and you know did you i don't know if you saw the commercial this year where Santa Claus rescued Dad and drove the big semi truck and brought Dad back home to the little girl i mean that that's classic, and here's Santa driving one of those big coca-cola semis you know so they they touched all bases they got Santa, they got the big semi and the and the little girl's wish was to bring dad home for Christmas, and Santa in the truck brought him home. <laughs> well, we cover all the heartstrings there.
0: Yeah, I don't know why, but I'm thinking of all the bad press McDonald's used to get about appealing too much to kids, but a little, little bit of that same vein. And again, yeah, reading that section, even just thinking of my own experience, yes, definitely it is some. It's synonymous with Christmas and the holiday that uh, is part of, it seems like, most Americans at least experience. And going back to the Christmas Done Bright, can you talk a little bit about Springfield, Tennessee?
1: Yeah, that's where I was going to jump off (laughs) on there. The Christmas Done Bright, it's a very unique company. It was a, a mom and dad, they started this basically in their basement and they we started building LED Christmas lights, and they it just got so popular that they bought what at that time was the abandoned Coca-Cola bottling plant in Springfield to expand their business. And it continued to grow. Last year, not not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before when we were all able to move around, that Coca-Cola plant, X plant, now the home of Christmas Dunbright, that's where the, the name comes from, all these beautiful LED displays that they make, and they make little ones for the home or big commercial ones or whatever, that plant was part of the community's christmas tour of homes and people just flocked there to see it and people the lady that 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 runs the business told me she said as many people came to see the displays as came to see the plant and they all had memories of that coca-cola plant so it's uh, again it's that coca-cola memory thing but it if you're in springfield have a reason to be there. It's a chance to see an old Coca-Cola plant and to see some great uh, craftsmanship in LED displays. Wonderful place.
0: That's actually a great segue to one of my other notes. Something that I felt like was a theme for this book, more so even than the last one, was the different places that were repurposing the coca-cola buildings typically the bottling plants for concert venues and i know another one for like wedding venues and a gathering hall which i really like because again it's one of these ways to bring people to a specific history but it's made relevant for today's social scene community whatever you want to call it can you talk a little bit about those efforts
1: yeah, there's, there's two that are almost neighboring in uh, Alabama. One is in Andalusia, and the other is in Dothan. I think they're probably 60, 70 miles apart. The one in Dothan, and we mentioned that earlier, is the one where Stanhope uh, Elmore was actually the, the, uh, the one that started that plant. And he, in fact, was a brother-in-law to William Bellingrath of the famous Bellingrath uh, Coca-Cola families. Um, His sister had married William Bellingrath, and as things evolved, uh, when William died, you know, old old, uh, Stanhope got involved, and he was already helping out. And he expanded and went into Dothan. Well, that plant has been purchased by a, a gentleman who. Provides as a, a career protective service for entertainment facilities. He brings in the detectives and the guards and so forth. to If you're having a big concert someplace, he and you know, and he thought, Boy, Dothan needs something like this. And from there, he bought the plant, which he'd seen for years sitting empty, and they created this wonderful, um, entertainment facility. The ironic thing about Dothan is that Elmore then also went on later to become involved in a plant in Ottawa, Kansas. Now, in Ottawa, Kansas, that plant is the one that you briefly referred to as a wedding, wedding and other event center. And, and, it's, and they've done a beautiful job in converting that into a a facility, an an event facility. And the ironic thing about all of that, which we mentioned in in that chapter, a man who was going to have his class reunion, I think maybe 40th, 50th, I don't recall the number, at that facility had been a youngster when his granddad ran the plant. And I actually have a picture of him that's probably four or five years old dressed in a little Coca-Cola suit. But here he is at his class reunion in the plant that his <laughs> his granddad ran. And it's just there's so much of it that ties together. But can you imagine the memories that that, that in itself brought, you know, for that, that particular individual? Again, it's it's Coca-Cola memories. Um We talk about the signs and the places in. um, We'll we'll go north on you with Hutchison, Kansas. There's a, a big sign, a big mural that's been painted on the wall of a hardware store. That mural represents artwork that was done by a Coca Cola artist who started out painting signs for Coca-Cola on the sides of buildings and trucks and so forth, later became an internationally famous wildlife artist. Les Koba is his name. Kuba, I may be pronouncing it wrong. And the sign, this huge sign on this hardware store in Hutchison is one that Les did that showed the stages when he did the original artwork the stages of his life, and it shows him painting a sign on the side of an old store, which he actually, it's one that he did. Then it, it shows him um, going on in life, uh, you know, doing more paintings, and ultimately it shows him sitting on the porch of that store carving a duck, A duck decoy. And it's such a classic painting that the local artist who has followed this particular painting uh, all of his life decided as a tribute to him, he wanted to redo the painting as a mural on the side of this hardware store. It's a fantastic thing. But there's a secret Coca-Cola story in there that when, when the artist when Les was very young and painting signs for a living, he was called to Georgia, to Tifton, Georgia, to paint a sign, a Coca-Cola mural, on a ballpark, on the wall of the, the, the wall of the ballpark, and uh, he had, he had painted so many Coca-Cola signs and knew the logo so well that he could actually paint it upside down and backwards which he would do for fun just to show people well when he got to tifton georgia he told the coca-cola distributor there he said you know i'll paint this for you but that that logo needs a little help and the and the distributor said well go ahead do what you want to do so He added a little depth to that famous Coca-Cola script logo that we all know, added a little depth to it, and the distributor who had hired him liked it. And he wasn't that far from Atlanta, so he called the people at Coca-Cola corporate in Atlanta, said, come look at this. And they came up and looked at it, went back to Atlanta, and a a couple days later they showed up again in Tifton, check in hand and bought the rights to reproduce that logo as we know it now from that artist from from minnesota because he had added just the right just the thing you know as they say to the coca-cola logo so there's little pieces of history that come out when you you start doing this and you find out that coca-cola is everywhere
0: yeah and i I think I'm more aware of it now by virtue of you and I having conversations, but it is absolutely true that you can find it everywhere. And again, it feels uniquely American, even though it is, of course, an international worldwide brand. The end of the book or towards the end, you talk about the last bottle and Hopefully I'm saying this right. You can correct me. It's basically the last time that – it was six ounces and change, I want to say, is the bottle size, but was created and sounds like all of it was spoken for as memorabilia collectibles that eventually got distributed. I thought that was a really interesting story. And again, I think harkens to the history and people's attachment to the brand.
1: Well, yeah, that was up in Winona, Minnesota. And another, see, another northern story we got here. But the little Coca-Cola bottler in Winona had been actually bottling the six-and-a-half-ounce bottle forever, you know. And it had it gotten to the point nobody was bottling them anymore. And there was so much consolidation of bottling when it consolidated, they just nobody did the six and a half ounce. He continued to do them, and there is to this day a demand for that little bottle. And you will find it in the stores, but it's now the bottle's probably made in I don't know Mexico or someplace. Who knows? He decided to make the last run of the six and a half ounce. He actually had to go out and seek. that bottle because nobody was making it he would get it from collectors and people that had the bottles and so forth to get enough to make that final run of a couple thousand and he invited people to come you know to, to purchase that last bottle the last run one of the people that purchased it Purchased the very last one, and he was a Coca-Cola bottler in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Paid $1,000 for that bottle of Coca-Cola. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. I talked to him, and he said, I've got it locked away, and it's not for sale. Uh, the other bottles in that run were each sold, I think, for either 10 or $15 each, and the money went to help a, a trail. That was being developed along the Mississippi River a hiking trail, and it was totally a, a you know a a non profit situation when he made the bottles and uh, again it was it was kind of ironic because one of the people who attended it was Randy Mayo, who we talk about Randy in the first book he's a he's a, a what third or fourth generation Beenhorn. Uh, the, the Beaten Hards, of course, were the first to ever bottle Coca-Cola in Vicksburg, on the north part. I mean, on the south part of the Mississippi River, right? So here's Randy goes to the northern part, as well, far north as you can go on the Mississippi, for the last bottling. Of the Coca Cola bottle, so it's kind of a unique history thing that he was there for it, and uh, and it, it, he made a little made a few comments at the ceremony, and and several people from uh, Coca Cola corporate were there for that event. So it was it was a pretty neat little event for Winona, Minnesota.
0: Yeah, and it fits all of the themes that we're talking about for maybe an area that doesn't get a huge amount of tourists or other focus that's a cool event and again it brings all the history together also from the independent bottlers like you mentioned and again if people want to hear more information about the beaten harns we talk about it in our last episode and of course that's very well documented in the first book so i recommend people go read that and also listen to our last uh, chat together
1: I was just going to mention we've talked about traveling in one of these days you know we're all going to be traveling again and of course one of the the best migrations is the snowbird migration that goes from the north to Florida every early winter and stays until spring you know well if you're in the snowbird migration um there's a place and it's in my book and it's special to me because they were just wonderful people uh in Fort Walton Beach florida there's a place called the buccaneer shop buccaneer gift shop it is without a doubt the largest place i've ever seen for coca-cola collectors and memorabilia and they have there besides anything you could think of that's not not the new stuff it's memorabilia stuff in back of that store there is a huge it must be 12 feet tall coca-cola bottle then you can get your picture taken standing next to this giant Coca-Cola bottle. They actually, when the store, I think, was celebrating its 30th anniversary, he actually went to Coca-Cola corporate and had a bottle produced with the store logo on it, which he said it took forever to convince Coca-Cola to do that because they don't normally do bottles in towns where there hasn't been a plant you know and uh, so he's got some of those still there but it's it's the buccaneer it's in fort walton beach no i'm not being paid for this commercial but they're wonderful people and if you're ever down that way need to stop and see jeff ring and the ring family at the buccaneer gift
0: shop Very cool. And again, we're touching on some of the stories that you highlight. There are many more in both the first as well as the second, the Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. I think, Larry, that's all I have for you today. Again, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you again. Before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and let folks know where they can get the book if they want to contact you or any other events, promotions you maybe have going on?
1: Right. The uh, The best way to get it, it's through the website. Uh, that way we, we know who you are. We'll autograph it and so forth, you know. So it's just the Coca-Cola trail dot com. And, uh, you can buy both of them. In fact, a uh, little plug here, uh, shameless commercial. Uh, if you buy both of them, we have a special price. The, the, normally the books are 22 each. Buy them both at the same time. You get both of them for 35 and we don't charge shipping coca-cola trail.com it is available uh there's other places on the internet that sell it and chances are if you walk into a, an old country store you're just liable to see it sitting on the counter for sale
0: cool and we will definitely put a link to your website on the show notes so it's easy for folks to get to the site and grab themselves a copy again larry i appreciate you taking the time to join me today and we'll be in touch
1: well, Greg, we will appreciate it again. The return visit—it's uh, nice to get called back, you know. In seconds, uh, you have a have a good, uh, safe start of the year, and uh, we'll see what happens in 2021. Maybe we'll get together.
0: We've all got our fingers crossed. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thanks for listening.